Nebraska Public Media Sports brings you live coverage of the girls and boys NSAA High School Soccer Championships from Morrison Stadium at Creighton University. Monday, May 13th, see Class B girls at 8.30 p.m. Central and Class A girls at 8 p.m. Central on Nebraska Public Media. Welcome to Hurt at Sports Radio. Kicking off hour number two here on Hurt at Sports Radio on AM 590 ESPN Omaha, ESPN Tri-Cities. We're also live on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We are joined now on the War Horse Sportsbook Hotline by Adnan Burke. He's of the Major League Baseball Network, NHL Network, and the Cinephile Pod. Adnan, how are you this morning? Ravi, Andrew, great to be with you guys. How are things? Hey, great, man. Thanks for taking the time. Of course. My pleasure. Happy to talk football and whatever other sports you guys want. Oh, yeah. We're going to go all across the map with you because we know you do everything. And, you know, Ravi to my right, and I'll let him kick this thing (laughs) off because he's a huge movie buff, too. I like movies. I don't know if I can analyze them as good as you both can. But I give it my all sometimes. Like, I'm, I'm like a, a, a lesser Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> but listen, Rotten Tomatoes, listen, they have the, the critics' reviews, they also have the audience reviews. So as long as you slot into one of those, you're <laughs> yeah. good to go. Amen. Well, and with Oscar season coming up, I, couldn't, I can't let you get out of here without some movie questions. But we'll start off with the Super Bowl because, obviously, we've finally got our Super Bowl matchup set up, 49ers and Chiefs. Um, Adnan, my, my biggest thing that I'm trying to figure out here is I think the 49ers have the better roster. I know the Chiefs have the better quarterback. I'm trying to figure out how big of a gap that is and how obviously, like, I don't feel good betting against Mahomes ever, either theoretically or actually betting against him. How, how do you see this matchup in terms of roster versus quarterback gap? Yeah, you're bang on, Andrew. I feel the exact same way. You know, I'm a Philadelphia Eagles fan, so I still have nightmares of what happened a year ago, and I kept telling everybody, we've got the better team, they've got the better quarterback, but we're going to win this game. And the Eagles, of course, had the lead at the half, and then Mahomes takes over, and unfortunately for my guys, we were unable to win it. So my wife's actually from the Bay Area originally. She's from San Jose, and I keep telling her, listen, as a Niners fan, I know you're favored, and I don't want to get you anxious, but I would never bet against Mahomes and Andy Reid in a yeah. situation like this. Like, obviously, Mahomes is the headliner, but again, with my Eagles ties, I just think Andy Reid's an incredible coach, particularly when it comes to the halftime adjustments. Now, Shanahan certainly proved his worth for the Niners against the Lions. Whatever they did at the half, they completely changed that game, coming roaring back from 17 points down, and clearly, you know, up and down at will, their offense could do what they wanted to do against the Lions' defense. But I'm with you, man. I, I would not bet against Mahomes and Andy Reid in a Super Bowl situation. And I'm not a gambler, but I do find it interesting looking at these numbers and such. And so I checked yesterday, and I saw the Niners were favored minus two, and I said, that's crazy to me. I, 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 I can't. Like, listen, we've seen Mahomes as an underdog. And it, absolutely. It should, exactly. It should pretty much be a toss-up. I don't even think you could favor a team. If you did, I'd probably favor the Chiefs minus two because of just their track record and what they've done. And uh, But I'm with you. I think overall the Niners have the better team. I mean, offensively, they're, they're just ridiculous how many weapons they have. They have a lot more weapons the Mahomes does, which is Kelsey, and then, you know, hey, a little Marquez Valdez scaling here and there, and a bunch of guys who are known for more than drops than catches this year. Whereas Purdy's obviously terrific. McCaffrey's sensational. You know, George Kittle's excellent. You know, Ayuk made the catch, which completely changed the entire game with that 51 year catch. Mm-hmm. So I, I think they've got more weapons there. Defensively, now I love Fred Warner. I think he's, you know, obviously an all world, all pro linebacker, but 
the Lions really kind of ran at will against them. So I, I, I am, do think there's concerns there with the Niners' defense, particularly the running game. I don't know how much Andy Reid's going to use Pacheco as far as maybe early on running the ball, but I, I do think the Niners' rush defense is particularly concerning to me. I think their secondary can hold up. And, and then we talk about Kansas City, and it's funny. We're, we're three minutes into this conversation, and we mentioned their defense, which is the reason they won the game. I mean, right, right. Chris Jones was outstanding. Their secondary is amazing. I mean, it, it's not mistaken to say that Mahomes is the star. Of course he is. But their defense really is a difference maker this year. And, again, I credit longtime Eagles assistant, former Giants defensive coordinator, Steve Spagnuolo. Like, one thing about Spags is he's going to bring pressure, and he makes it exciting to watch defense. He coaches defense the way I like it, which is blitz-heavy and disguising packages. So they're going to try to make life miserable for Brock Purdy and put pressure on him, which should be fun. But um, this is a different Chiefs defense than what we've seen in the past, right? We, we've seen Mahomes before with the Superman cape dragging his team like LeBron and the Cavs <laughs> a few times. So this this is really a balanced team. But but I'm with the overall age, right? I think Niners is the better team. Mahomes is the better quarterback. Adnan, as you're watching both games unfold uh, last weekend, what was harder for you to process about how the losing staff executed? Was it the Ravens' reluctance to run the football, or was it Dan Campbell's constant aggressiveness in moments he didn't need to be? The Ravens, without question. I I thought, I I couldn't believe how they wouldn't run the ball, and they got away from what made them so successful all year long. And it's pretty frustrating for Lamar Jackson. I think this was his, I wouldn't say his last chance. Clearly, he's 27. He's going to have other chances. But this was his best chance so far. And and all the... um, all the cards seem to be lined up for them. I mean, at home and rested and ready to go against what felt like a weakened Chiefs team, particularly their offense aside from Mahomes and Kelsey. This is your shot. And the fact they only put up seven points, I mean, that's just abysmal. The fact they wouldn't run the ball, and it's um, very quizzical for John Harbaugh and company. I'm actually fully in support of Dan Campbell. I I know it's been a talking point, understandably so, but I I love it because he's been riverboat Dan all year. You know, he's been aggressive all year. And I think you've got to stick with what makes you successful. And, you know, particularly I think the one everyone's looking at is the, the fourth down with seven minutes left, right? You kick the field goal, try to 27. And I was arguing with my son, Yusuf, who's 15, watching the game. He said, oh, kick the field goal. And I said, no, this is absolutely the right decision. I said, you're getting completely boat raced here in the second half, right? The Niners are an absolute juggernaut. And they've not only come back, they've now taken the lead. You've got to snatch momentum back. And this is the first time you've had any semblance of a drive you got to score a touchdown here. I don't care there's seven minutes left in the game. You tie it, big deal. It, uh, Dan Levitard's agreeing with me. I looked at him yesterday. Dan goes, was there any inkling that the Lions would then stop the Niners? No. Like, offensively, they did whatever they wanted with the ball. So I think if you kick that field goal, the Niners would score a touchdown anyways. 34-27, and who knows, was there a minute and a half left? There's probably not enough time. I mean, it's, it's tough to play those probabilities, but I, I, I think you go for it. Because if you do get that fourth down, that does give you a boost. And if you do score a touchdown – all of a sudden now you say, hey, we, maybe we can hold the Niners to a field goal and we run out of here and we steal a victory. So I, I actually looked up the percentages analytics-wise, and apparently it's also a pick Like in that situation with a fourth and three, with that much time left in the game, I don't know the exact numbers on my head, but I, I looked it up. It was something like if you do it, it's like 47% or 50% probability, and if it works, you win the game 53%. Whereas if you kick the field goal, it was like 45% and maybe 48% to win the game. So it's, the numbers were very equivalent, so you could go either way. To me, it's one of those plays you look back and you go, oh, my God, what are they thinking? But I, I, I don't agree. I think he was aggressive all year long. He's clearly felt the momentum was not on his team's side. He just knew his defense could not stop the Niners. It was their best chance to win. Now, what you could argue, which is a fair criticism of Dan Campbell, is that when they got the ball back, mm. when they ran the ball in that third down, like that was a killer, right? Mm-hmm. They had to call the timeout and then score the touchdown and then go on to that kick. 
that I think is a fair criticism, that why would you use that play call then? But, uh, no, I think it's the Ravens to me. When I looked at that game, I go, man, you guys had a chance. Whereas Detroit, I mean, I think it's remarkable they were in that position, quite frankly. I mean, to, three seasons in to be, you know, within a score of going to the Super Bowl for a franchise that's never even been in the Super Bowl, to me, that's overachieving. Now, in the same breath, I do think it's catastrophic because we all know you rarely get these opportunities. And I think Dan Campbell spoke about that very passionately after the game. You can't say to yourself, well, we got the NC Championship game this year, so we're due for the Super Bowl next year. No, no, you, you might take a step back. Like Other teams will get better. Like The Eagles are going to get better. You know, The Cowboys will be better. There's going to be other teams who are going to be crashing the party. So you can't just say for Detroit, hey, our arrow's pointing up. We, we, this was a learning experience. We'll be back. It might not be. And that's, I think, what's most painful if you're a Lions fan, because this, this was a glorious opportunity for them. But again, big picture, I think you overachieved. You won the playoff games when people didn't expect you to be. You were on the road in a hostile environment, almost won. I think for Detroit, there's a lot of solace you can take, even from a loss. We're talking with Adnan Burke from the MLB Network, NHL Network, and Cinephile Pod. Uh, Adnan, you know, I, I made the argument earlier this week that there's no single game in sports that affects a player's legacy more than the Super Bowl does. And with that kind of idea in mind, I've been thinking a lot about what this game means for Brock Purdy versus Patrick Mahomes. I mean, Mahomes, I think all time is on the on pace to land somewhere between like Joe Montana and and Tom Brady. So we're pretty sure what he is as a quarterback. But do you have any idea what I mean with a win or a loss historically where Brock Purdy kind of starts to land because I mean he could end up being Trent Dilfer he could end up being you know some somewhere in between there how do you think this game affects Brock Purdy specifically since there's so much controversy over what he is as a quarterback yeah I I I think it's hard to have any one game as a litmus test for a player you know I think he's he's certainly unique talent and it's really cool to be able to say this guy went from being Mr. Irrelevant to now being the quarterback in the Super Bowl you know, maybe he's slightly overrated by the media at large. Like, the, I don't, I don't put him necessarily as the you know a top three or top five quarterback in football right now. I personally wouldn't vote him as the MVP. To me, Lamar's the MVP. Um, maybe McCaffrey and Purdy split some votes together. I get that, but but listen, he's talented. There's no question about it. I mean, he's he's overcome quite a bit of adversity to get to this point. I've been skeptical all along, and he's surpassed virtually every test so far. I mean, it, it has to say something about your team and your character if you're down 17 points in your rally, and they were able to do so. And he's been calm and composed. And what I've been impressed by is his ability to run when he, when he needs to. You know, I think uh, even on the broadcast, I think think almost said something like, you know, he's not exactly Lamar Jackson, but when he needs to run, he does. And there was a couple of big third, third and fours, third and twos. He was able to scramble for like 10, 12 yards and get the first downs and was able to do that. So he obviously has a strong arm and he's accurate and all the rest of it. But, yeah, I don't – unless he's like an absolute dud, like unless he throws like four interceptions – I think people are going to say Brock Purdy is a good quarterback, regardless of the outcome. You know, I think, I think he's going to have a, a, a good performance, but I do think that Chiefs defense is legit. Like, I, I wouldn't be surprised <clears throat> if we're all watching this game and he goes something like 18 of 27, <clears throat> two touchdowns, two picks, and those picks might be very untimely because that's how good Casey's defense is. So I think we'll walk out of that game and say, Purdy's clearly an excellent quarterback. He's their guy. But he might not win because that's how good the Chiefs' defense is. Adnan, this week we've seen uh, – I'm going to change gears here. Uh, we've seen the Twins send off Jorge Polanco. We've seen the Jays sign veteran Justin Turner. Jock Peterson joins the D-backs. Not only how do you grade some of these offseason moves for these teams, 
but which of these moves or a, a move that you have seen so far this offseason moves the needle for that team in particular? Because at least some of the teams mixed into here, you have the D-backs who were runner-ups, uh, World Series runner-ups last year, and the Jays who are always competitive. How do you see some of these off-season free agent moves uh, or, or trades move the needle for these uh, organizations? Yeah, of the three, I look at the Mariners when it's moving the needle the least. Uh, I think Polanco is a good player and certainly he's hit historically. You know, they give up prospects and some other things, so it's tough to really see what Minnesota gets back. But I think Seattle still has work to do. You know, they're, they're going to hope that they could build around, obviously, the likes of Julio Rodriguez and J.P. Crawford and Ty France, and, and they hope that Polanco can, can fit in well with that offense. But that remains to be seen if they're good enough to challenge. It was a really competitive division. Obviously, the Rangers won the World Series, and the Astros look formidable once again, especially after they signed Josh Hader. But I think of the other moves you mentioned, I like the Blue Jays signing Justin Turner. Yeah, he's 39 years of age, but he hit 23 home runs and 96 RBI. And then clearly Toronto's offense needed improvement. He can be a, pretty much the DH for them moving forward. I mean, obviously you're going to spell Vladdy here and there, George Springer at DH day. Justin Turner can play third base, but he's, he's clearly below average defensively. So I, I do think they still have a concern with what happens with Matt Chapman because I don't think you can put Turner at third base on an everyday basis. That's just untenable. Um, Chapman's an elite defender, and as I said, Turner's a suspect. Mm-hmm. But as a hitter, as a guy that can go out there and hit you 280, 20 home runs, driving 80 or 90, Justin Turner's that guy. And especially in a one-year deal, $13 million, I think that works out both well for Toronto and Justin Turner. And I like Jock Peterson. What really helps them with Arizona is they're so righty-heavy, is that Jock really gives them an important left-handed compliment for all the righties in that lineup. That, to me, is, I think, really what he brings value there. And Listen, he's a guy with power, and he's certainly had great years at the Dodgers, and, and Arizona's tinkered a little bit. Like, I give them credit. They made the World Series as an 84-win team, but they've added a little bit. Eduardo Rodriguez, obviously, I think is a good pitcher. You know, they had to start, you know, they had a bullpen game in the World Series. You never want to see that because their depth wasn't quite strong enough. But now I think they, they feel pretty good about the fact that, you know, Eduardo Rodriguez certainly slots in well behind Zach Gallon. you got Brandon Fott as well, and um, Merrill Kelly's a good pitcher. So I, I think that Arizona's definitely made improvements, and then Jock's a good addition. But I particularly like Justin Turner. I think he showed in the AL East with the Red Sox he can still hit. I think he'll hit again with Toronto. Adnan, i got to ask you about my favorite team, the Boston Red Sox. Um, it might maybe a little therapy session here. I've been obviously super frustrated basically ever since the Mookie Betts deal with the front office. Is there any hope for me, especially in the starting rotation, or am I, uh, should I kind of just fast-forward past baseball season again this year? Yeah, I think it could be tough, man. Listen, Alex Cora is my buddy. Our years together at ESPN mm-hmm. will always be bonded by the fact we were uh, working the 1 a.m. shift on ESPN2. <laughs> Whenever I see him, we still joke to this day. We used to work the two and a hook, which means that was jargon for the 2.30 a.m. Saturday college. Because that was coming off of college football. So it was just a disaster. So um, <laughs> I, will, I will always root for AC because he was with me for the two and a hook. And I think he's a brilliant manager and as good a manager in the game of baseball. And by the way, I think Boston should lock him up. Last time I checked, I believe this is the last year of his deal. So uh, in case things could not go any worse for Boston, you can't lose Alex Cora. He's too valuable to them as, as a manager. But I think those are well-founded concerns about the pitching staff. I mean, <clears throat> Sale gets traded, which I don't have an issue with because he currently hasn't been the same guy. And injuries have impacted him, but I just don't see how they're going to be successful in that division. I mean, the Orioles are, are awesome, and they add Jackson Holiday, the number one prospect in baseball. Matt Holiday's kids to be on that team at some point. Another year of Rutschman and Gunnar Henderson and that kind of you know young core is going to be strong. The Rays, every year we sleep on, they're going to win 90 to 95 games. 
Yankees add Juan Soto. Him with Judge together is formidable. I think Marcus Stroman's a good pickup for their starting staff. You know, hopefully they get bounce backs from Rodon, et cetera. But the Yankees are, let's say, 90 wins. Maybe maybe that's a jump from 82 a year ago, but I think from that mix. And Toronto, to me, was an 89-win team. They're an underachiever. Mm-hmm. They, they should be 90-92 wins. So for Boston, I don't see anything but, but last place in the American League East. Yeah, they can hit. They certainly got, you know, some great players there. And obviously, Devers is always fun to watch. And um, Yoshida's very good, but I, I don't see it, man. As you said, their pitching staff, I just don't know how they're going to get 27 outs on a consistent basis. It's, it's going to be tough. And I'd like some of their players, Cutter Crawford, obviously, and, and Garrett Whitlock can do some things. But uh, I think it's going to be bleak, quite frankly, for Boston. Although, AC can work some magic. I mean, that, that team should be 75 wins, and they'll get them to 80 wins. But I don't know. It's going to be hard for them, I think. Adnan, speaking of another team with troubles in the American League, the team that finished last in baseball, um, not just last season, but in, in seasons before, the Oakland A's, or do, am I even allowed to say Oakland in front of the A's anymore? Because who knows if they will be playing in Oakland while uh, their, their field is, quote-unquote, so-called being built in Vegas, if that's even still a thing. Um, are, are they going to be the Coyotes, the Arizona Coyotes of baseball playing in like a college stadium? Like, can, can you give some explanation on what's happening with the A's this season? Yeah, my understanding is they're going to be in Oakland this year because this is the final year of their lease. So I think you can still call them the Oakland A's for at least one more year. And then I believe that stadium is not going to be ready until 2027. So that looks like two years there they could be nomads before they find a spot. So I know there's there's a few options being floated around, as you said, with the Coyotes playing in a arena which seats like 5,000 people. That, that could be an option. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it's definitely bizarre. There's no question about it. It's not what anybody wants in the short term, but hopefully long term it does work out and baseball in Vegas will be as successful as, as hockey and football have been. But, but the short answer is I'm not really sure. I know for this year they're going to be in Oakland. That's going to happen. Uh, they can always somehow negotiate with Oakland to extend the lease two more years uh, until the park is ready in Las Vegas, but we all know how acrimonious it's been, so I, I highly doubt that Oakland would say, yeah, great, two more years you can hang out here and remind us of the fact you're leaving us soon. So I think they're going to have to find something to do. I mean, there, there wasn't one idea they could share some home games with the San Francisco Giants. Like, basically, when the Giants were on the road, the A's would play at home in San Francisco. Hmm. Um, but I'm not sure how that's going to work. Or, or yeah, there, there could be temporary solutions. Maybe in Vegas they put a AAA ballpark. Although I don't believe it has a dome, so I don't know. Like that, that could be a little hot. So I don't know, man. It's, it, all I know is this. I think in 2027, the park's ready, and 2024, they're playing the A's. 25 and 26, <laughs> I, I really don't know what the answer is there. I'll be honest. <laughs> all right, and then before we let you go here in a few minutes, I've got to get some movie questions in. Um, one of my favorite things that you do is that cinephile pod, and so um, – just, I'll give you some, some broad questions here so you've got a little runway. Uh, first one, what is the not just the best, but also your favorite movie that you watched this year, and then either your best or favorite individual performance that you saw on film this year? Yeah, so my favorite movie of the year was Killers of the Flower Moon. You know, I'm an enormous Martin Scorsese mm-hmm. fan, and, and this was a, a notable nomination, by the way, for him as Best Director. This is now 10 nominations as Best Director. That's the most of any living director. He eclipses, he eclipses his good friend Steven Spielberg by one. So I thought it was just a masterpiece. You know, I've seen the movie four times. Ooh. I saw it at the critic screening. I saw it opening day. I saw it on New Year's Eve because I got a link sent to me. Because, you know, because of Cinefile, I'm in the Critics' Choice Association. So I get all these screeners sent to me, which is obviously incredible. It's the only way I really can really do the job. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, you spend so much money trying to see all these movies. But the point is, 
the screener link said to me it expires at midnight. So I suddenly watched it again. So that was how my New Year's Eve was spent watching it for the third time. <laughs> and then my, my wife hadn't seen it yet, and I said, you know what, I'll watch it with you. So it was on Apple Plus, as you guys know, streaming now, which I encourage everyone to do if you haven't seen it yet. So I've seen it four times, and I, I just think it's an absolute masterpiece. You know, it, it's so haunting and, and powerful, and I think it's beautifully shot and, and excellent performances across the board. Particularly Lily Gladstone, who's got a good chance at winning Best Actress. Right now, I think Emma Stone has a slight edge for poor things, but Lily's right there. She won the Golden Globe, gave a wonderful speech. Mm -hmm. uh, Marty's not going to win, unfortunately. Nolan's going to win for Oppenheimer, which is a great movie, which I've seen twice. And I really enjoyed watching that on the big screen. But I was thrilled that Bob De Niro got nominated. You know, De Niro hasn't been nominated in a dozen years since uh, Best Supporting Actor for Silver Linings Playbook. I was shocked he wasn't nominated for The Irishman. I was very disappointed that didn't happen. But he's amazing in Killers of the Flower Moon. But my single favorite performance is one of my favorite actors, and that's Paul Giamatti. I thought he was amazing in The Holdovers, which he's nominated for Best Actor. That's his first ever nomination for a Best Actor Academy Award. He's only been nominated once before, Supporting Actor for Cinderella Man. You know, Sideways, this is the 20th anniversary of Sideways, which he wasn't even nominated for. And I went back. That was the year that Jamie Foxx won for Ray, which is a great movie. But how the hell Johnny Depp was nominated for Finding Neverland ahead of Giamatti. <laughs> I'll, I'll never figure that one out. But, um, yeah, I, I'm really pulling for Giamatti. And my friend Ben Lyons said he thinks he's going to win. According to most of these gambling sites, again, I don't, I don't follow these things, but I just kind of casually look at it. Killian Murphy has been the favorite for Oppenheimer, which is going to win Best Picture, Best Director. It's going to win a bunch of awards, maybe even screenplay for Nolan. So he's been the favorite. Bradley Cooper, a lot of buzz for Maestro. But Ben said to me, listen, man, your guy's going to win, and I'll tell you why. Ultimately, it does come down to a popularity contest, and everyone loves Paul Giamatti. He's mm. been an actor's actor, working hard since 97, 98. He, was, you know, he has one scene in Donnie Brasco. He's one scene in My Best Friend's Wedding, Joey Roberts. He's got a couple scenes in The Truman Show. Then American Splendor, which is a film I love, put him on the map. And then, of course, Sideways and, and all the rest of it. People love him from private parts, right? The Howard Stern movie. So mm -hmm. you know, he's one of these guys that's one of these hard workers, never been nominated. He's in his mid-50s. He goes, I think your guy's going to win. Because ultimately, if you go Killian Murphy, yeah, Oppenheimer's a brilliant film, but it really is Christopher Nolan's achievement. I think Giamatti might win, and uh, nothing would make me happier. I thought he was the holdovers, by the way, if you haven't seen it. He, he plays, I think it's really a role that's close to him, because his father, of course, the late Bartlett Giamatti, who very famously was baseball commissioner, banned Pete Rose, died of a heart attack a, a year later. You know, he was the president of Yale, and Giamatti comes from a family of teachers. And you know, he gave a wonderful speech at the Critics' Choice Awards. I was there in Los Angeles. He said, listen, my whole family's teachers. You know, teachers do a good thing. You, know, you should love your teachers. It was really, really impactful what he said. And uh, he plays a boarding school teacher who's a little crusty, has some ocular issues, <laughs> smells like fish. Um, but it's really funny, and it's, it's from Alexander Payne. If you know his work, of course, they did Sideways together. He did The Descendants with George Clooney. You know, Payne's just a really gifted director. So I'm pulling hard for Killers of the Flower Moon, which I don't think will do very well at the Oscars because Oppenheimer's really going to clean up. But I do have a, a soft spot for Giamatti. Hopefully he can pull through for a Best Actor win. And then we got a heart out right in about one minute. You'll hear the music when we have about 30 seconds left. But I have to know, because just listening to that response, you are so passionate about this, this alter ego of yours. Who or what <laughs> was, the, was your driving force getting into film and TV? Yeah, you know, my mom always loved movies when we were kids, and it was always a fun ritual. She'd make a big batch of popcorn, and we'd, we'd pop on a movie. And she always loved old movies, so she got me into a lot of you know, old film noir, so I used to love those Bogart movies and Cagney movies, the gangster films of the 40s, and uh, mm. Casablanca is obviously one of my all-time favorites, and it's kind of like with sports, right? You, you, you find your favorite team, and you, you learn more about them, and learn about history, and similarly for me, so I adored Scorsese, very quickly loved his movies, and I started looking up who are his influences, who are his favorite directors. I'd watch the top three movies of a certain actor, Brando, De Niro, etc., and wow. that's what happened. 
love the heart out, by the way. I, even the warning with the music. <laughs> yeah, we got you. Yeah. Ah, man, thank you so much for joining us. If we get a chance to talk to you again, I may have to spend like half the interview just asking you about Dan Levitar because I'm a huge fan. So I may have to spend some time doing that. But thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, Dan and those guys are the best. You get the show. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> hey, thanks, man. <laughs> That's Andan Burke, MLB Network, NHL Network, Cinephile Pod. Uh, so happy he was able to join us. Coming up next, our Wednesday friend, Andy Kendi from KETV.